Thank you, Miss Melba. All right, for the rest of you that are remaining in here with me, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we've been studying through the book of Philippians, and uh, um, we've been walking through it verses by verses. And, uh, we want to look at Philippians chapter 4, two verses this morning, verse 4 and 5. A couple of weeks ago when I preached, the last time I preached out of uh, Philippians, I um, I had a few questions after the sermon. Preacher, is there something wrong in the church? Because I preached on unity. Well, it just so happened that that's what Paul dealt with in the first few verses of chapter 4, the disunity of the church. And, and no, there wasn't anything going on in the church. I told him, no, it's not that. It's just we're preaching through the book of Philippians. So when it hits it, I have to preach it, no matter if it's going on or not. So uh, just to give you a little, nothing's going on, no great problems. But we do want to talk about grace in a disagreeable world. Grace in a disagreeable world. How many of you would agree with me that, here we go, how many of you would agree with me that we live in a disagreeable world? Uh, even today, not everybody agrees. The problem is that we need to learn how to, as believers to show grace in a disagreeable world. And today it is seemingly getting worse and worse. And I'll share some things with you as I, I, I preach to you this morning. So if you would, let's honor the reading of the word of the Lord by standing. Philippians chapter 4, and I want to just look at verses 4 and 5 this morning. And Philippians chapter 4 and, and verses 4 and 5, says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your known unto all men, the Lord is at hand. Father, we thank you and praise you for the word of the Lord this morning. Lord, we thank you for the challenge that you have given us, and truly these verses are a challenge for us today. Lord, even as Christians, we find that it is, it is sometimes hard to be, show grace and sometimes hard to be agreeable in a disagreeable world. But Lord, I pray today as we look to this together, that we might see how the church is to be different from the world. How we're to live our life in such a way that God, you are glorified in the world around us, sees Christ in us. So Lord, move me out of the way, hide me behind the cross, that it not be my word, but your word today. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be this morning. A magazine article begins with this quote. Bold capital letters. Half of all Americans are angrier today than they were a year ago. Just like that, that I'm talking about was written in 2000. We would almost, you know, wonder what in the world was going on then compared to what is going on today. The problem is that the world has been struggling for quite half of all Americans are angrier today than they were a year ago. From their view on the state of American dream, which is dead, the American role in the world, which is not what it used to be, and how life is working out for them, which not, is not what they expected more people than ever are viewing life through the veil of disappointment. Historian Daniel uh, uh, Borston suggests that Americans suffer so much disappointment because of self-centered, unrealistic expectations. In his book entitled uh, um, The Image, he writes, he 
we expect everything and, and or every anything and everything. We even expect the, the to the contradictory and the impossible. We expect a compact car, which is to be spacious, and a luxury car, which is to be economical on gas. We expect to eat and to stay thin, to be constantly on the move, and yet be very good neighbors. To go to church of our choice and yet accept its guidance over us. We expect to revere God and to play God at the same time. No wonder, he says, so many people feel deceived and disappointed. Never have people expected so much more than the world will ever be able to fulfill. Into this culture of expectation and disappointment, frankly, into every generation, God has placed His church to be the different maker, to set the example, to be different than the world around them. He redeemed the bride and He created us to to live in the world but not be of the world, to demonstrate entirely different perspectives. We pursue an entirely different set of expectations. In fact, we the church are to define everything in life by the entirety of a different dictionary. Not the world's dictionary, but God's dictionary. We literally become to our dis satisfied world, a picture of satisfaction. We're to become to our deceived world a picture of reality. We're to become to our angry and self-absorbed world a demonstration of grace. And for the believer, never is this more convictingly clear than in Paul's rapid fire commands that he gives to us one right after another. And each of these commands, by the way, is a volume of study and personal uh, application. And yet, Paul flies through them one right after another. Actually, he speaks and writes faster than I will be able to preach on them. So I'm going to slow down and take the time to preach on them a little bit slower than what he writes them. Philippians chapter 4 began with two women who were at odds with one another in the church. And Paul settled this dispute by asking that grace be demonstrated among a disagreeable church. Now Paul moves to talk about how we as Christians are to demonstrate grace in a disagreeable world. You see, the Bible tells us and reminds us that if the church is at odds with one another, how in the world will we ever help the world that is at odds with one another? We are to be in unity together so that we can go out into the world that is in disagreement and give them something to hold on to. So I want to share with you just two things today from these verses. I want to look at each verse and share one thing about each of the verses. In verse 4, grace that leads to a, a resolution of joyfulness. You see, as Christians, we need to be resolute in the fact that we say, you know, in and through all things, I give God the glory. We need to be resolved in the fact that, that we can rejoice in all things, not because we love to suffer, not because we love to go through hardships, not because we love bad things, but because we have God who loves us and who has overcome the world. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. And one might be asking today, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Rejoice in the Lord. Is Paul kidding me? Does he have any idea what he is saying? 
Is he so out of touch with the harsh realities of this world that he can flippantly say, happy-go-lucky, just be, rejoice? Now, rejoice in the Lord. Listen to the words. Let them absorb. Paul isn't just making a statement here. He is, he is giving us a resolution for life. You might be thinking, it's only been a, a week or so since the devastating floods of Kentucky that wiped out a large portion of homes and even lives. And yet, Paul, you expect the Christian men and women of those communities to turn, uh, that have been turned inside out and upside down in this disaster just to simply rejoice in the Lord? Are you serious? Again, listen to the words. Rejoice in the Lord. Nowhere is Paul saying rejoice in the situation. Nowhere is Paul saying rejoice in the disaster. But rejoice in the Lord. Or again, we might be thinking, how am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when the memory of my past sins are weighing so heavy upon my heart? How can I obey this command when people I love are, are being persecuted and suffering unjustly? Or maybe we might be one of those who have just lost my job or my mother just died last week or my children won't even talk with me. The car won't start and I have no money to get it fixed. I'm supposed to see the doctor next week and I'm scared about what he might tell me. But yet Paul says rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, easier said than done. So I'm here to tell you today that, that even though it sounds easier said than done, it is able to be done. Every believer in Christ, when we get the idea of what this really means, can rejoice in the Lord no matter what we're going through. Paul doesn't just say it once. Listen, look at your Bible. Paul says it twice. He wants us to know this is not something flippantly he's saying. This is something that he wants to become resolute in your life. He wants this to be a resolution that every believer takes into the world. I can rejoice in the Lord no matter what the world throws at me. I can rejoice in the Lord no matter what my health is. I can rejoice in the Lord because of who he is not because of what I'm going through. And see, the Apostle Paul reminds us that we need to rejoice in the Lord. He says rejoice in the Lord, not just on Sundays, not just on happy days. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And you can't help but notice there are no loopholes in this command. There isn't no easy out. This is commanded for all of us to make this a resolution of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, watch this. If Paul is commanding us here, then joy can't be a feeling of happiness. Okay? Many of us have this misunderstanding that joy and happiness are the same thing. Nope. Not at all. You know, uh, joy and happiness are two different things. You can never command someone to be happy, but you can command someone to be joyful. Paul is calling us to experience th that is unrelated to the external circumstances 
and in some way transcends all of them. Do you remember Charlie Brown? You remember Charlie Brown always had these wonderful sayings, and one of those sayings that Charlie Brown said often was, happiness is like a warm puppy. But one has to ask the question, what happens when the puppy runs away? You know, we could take Charlie Brown's statement and we could add anything. Happiness is when I get straight A's. Happiness is when the bills are paid. But what happens when those things don't happen? See, happiness is an ebb and flow. Happiness was when I was on the beach in Hawaii. Just, I really was going to wear my flowered shirt this morning, but I didn't want to rub it in. <laughs> happiness is, is something that we experience, not something that, that is commanded. The kind of happiness that we are thinking about is not joy. Joy is tied to Christ. It's tied to Jesus Christ. Happiness is based upon our circumstances and, and can't really be commanded. Joy is something that's internal. It's a response to the na nature of God's Spirit living within us. It's a response to knowing who He is and that He has overcome the world. Joy is that settled conviction that God is in control of everything, every circumstance and every event in my life, good or bad. He is even in charge of every trial that comes. We can follow the command of James in chapter 1 to respond with joy because we know that God has the ultimate purpose in our life. In James chapter 1 it says, as we go through the trials and tribulations of life, know that God is using them as a building block in our life so that we can be the matured believer that he wants us to be. Can you imagine... His demonstration here of grace through Paul's resolution to rejoice even in his situation. For we need to be reminded that Paul was not sitting on some beach sipping tea. He was in prison chained to a Roman guard. Can you imagine the effects of, uh, of these soldiers who guarded him? They didn't see a sourpuss complaining, whining, and, and grumbling, but yet a man who was rejoicing in the Lord, even though it wasn't what he expected when he got to Rome. We need not to be like so many Christians whose joy is so evidently, or evident, so deep, that it never comes to the surface. Let your joy be seen. Throughout the New Testament, we're given several truths about joy, and I want to share with you just a few of them that we, we find. First of all, joy is given by God to those who are saved. You see, we need to understand that God gives to you and I certain things that He doesn't give to the world. The world is, is disagreeable. The world is struggling because they don't have what we have. We need to go out and offer to them what we have so they can have what we have. The joy of the Lord comes through Christ. 
in Christ has given it to us the moment that we received Him, the moment that we said, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior in which I'm in need of, and I humble myself and I receive Him so He would forgive me. And when His Spirit moves in, the joy of the Lord moves in. In other words, joy is bound up in the gospel. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 2 for a minute. You don't have to turn there. You'll be familiar with the story. Luke chapter 2 is all about what? It's that holiday that I just heard was, was getting closer and closer again. Christmas, the birth of Christ. As a matter of fact, in, in Luke chapter 2, do you remember what the angels' announcement to the shepherds were? For behold, I bring you good news of great what? Joy. Great joy. For today in the city of David there was born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And by the way, after the shepherds left that outdoor delivery room, after they saw the Savior, the Bible tells us that they went away praising God. Now let me just share a few facts with you that you might not have realized. Nothing about their dirty life changed. The difficult job that they had of tending sheep didn't get any easier. Nothing about their income got better because they met the Savior. Nothing about their unclean status in religious life was altered. But after they had seen the Savior, the gospel was brought unto them an everlasting joy. They went away filled with joy, praising God because the Savior had come. You see, the joy comes because we have come to Christ, who has come to be our Savior. As the gospel message exploded in the book of Acts, among the Gentile believers, we're told that the Gentiles begin to rejoice and glorify the, 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 through the word of the Lord. As a matter of fact, the, the last verse of uh, Acts chapter 13, in that last paragraph, it says that the disciples were continually filled with joy. It's impossible to separate our salvation with the Lord Jesus Christ and being joyful. What makes a resolution of joyfulness possible is the fact that you and I have the Spirit of God living in us. And therefore, because the Spirit of God lives within us, Jesus gives us the ability to be joyful. Joy is, secondly, joy is the ongoing production of that Holy Spirit that dwells within us. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes, The fruit of the Spirit is love, what? joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. In other words, happiness is human, joy is supernatural. This conviction that allows us to rejoice that God is not only in control, but worthy of being worshipped and praised no matter what. Again, there is nothing here about our circumstances. It's all about who? None other than Jesus. You see, we rejoice in the Lord. Alright? Joy, third, joy is the result of receiving and obeying God's word. Jeremiah the prophet said this to God. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me joy and a delight to my heart. For I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. 
My friends, the more time that we spend in this Word, instead of the world, the more that we will be able to be joyful no matter what this world throws at us. My friends, the problem with so many of us as believers is that we're spending too much time in the world and not enough time in the Word. And when we'll get back into the Word of God, the world will no longer have its effects upon us. And so we need to be reminded that when we are nourishing ourselves in the Word of the Lord, joy will come in every circumstance. And then lastly, joy is deepened as believers experience trials. Now, no one wants to hear this. No one wants me to say that, listen, go through some trials, go through some stuff, and the joy of the Lord will increase in your life. But it's true. But it's true. You see, the joy of the Lord is increased as we go through the things that God shows His faithfulness, His love, His grace. You see, the world is going through the very same things that we're going through, but they have no help, no hope. It's no wonder they're, they're discouraged. It's no wonder they're disappointed. It's no wonder they're argumentative. It's no wonder they're disagreeable. But for you and I as believers, the trials and tribulations, James says, are there to build us up, to mature us, to be the Christian that we need to be so that we can walk uprightly and we can walk in the steps of the Lord. And so without the trials and tribulations, we will never grow in our grace and knowledge of the Lord. So I know none of us want to hear it, but the Bible reminds us that this is true. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and, and saying, Having received the word in much tribulation, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. What a convicting combination. Tribulation with much joy. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth that he was sorrowful yet rejoicing. Paul's tears are mingled with this settled conviction, this resolution that God is in control of all things, even my sorrow, therefore I can rejoice in the Lord. Again I say, rejoice. Listen, the resolution to rejoice isn't natural. It goes against every human nature we have. But it is supernatural. We've got to live outside of the natural and live in the supernatural. And we can experience the joy of the Lord. And to the depressed and depraved and disappointed human race around us, we can demonstrate something so unique that it mystifies the world around us. When they see that Christianity is not immune to the same things that they're going through, the stress, the relational heartaches, the frustrations, the painful sicknesses, the financial losses, the heartbreaking deaths of parents and grandparents and children and grandchildren. But when they look into our lives and they see effectively that we've rolled up our sleeves of faith and said, you know what, the circumstances of life are not going to beat me down. But my joy is in the Lord. My hope is in Him. My help is from Him. My strength is through Him. And yet, 
we resolve to rejoice in the trustworthiness of our Lord. The question for all of us today is will we choose to demonstrate in living color before a world so desperately in need of seeing that kind of faith? Will we say, I will rejoice in the Lord. It is my resolution. I am resolved to rejoice no matter what. A settled conviction that your God is worthy of worship, of praise, even in the midst of a broken heart. So the second thing I want us to look at is not only is our joy to be a resolution, but in verse 5, grace that leads to a reputation of gentleness. You know, that opening statement that I read, I read it and I thought, it fits today, even though it was written so long ago, it's today. The world is so angry. I mean, I, I remember this last year and a half watching the news and seeing brawls break out on planes. I, I was in one of our own restaurants in our own county and had a person belligerently screaming foully at another person because they were doing something they didn't think was appropriate. There is, there is something, something that the devil is working overtime to stir up in the hearts of men. A disagreeable, angry spirit. And church, we cannot be involved. But we must respond to that with gentleness. And I know it's not easy. There are a lot of things that, that the world is saying is right that we know is wrong, and it's hard not to just want them. Man! But the Spirit of the Lord says, be gentle. Be gentle. Verse 5, this verse, um, the word, the Greek word here has been used in many different ways, and I want to just talk about a few of those ways. Um, and when we look at it, it says, let your, King James uses the word moderation. And that word moderation, be known, he says, has a, a same word as gentleness and and, and meekness. It's used in many different forms. So when we ask, what does Paul mean by let your moderation be known, the first thing he says is that we need to act in, gener in, in gentleness. The way that we respond to a world that is disagreeable is not with an argument, but with gentleness. During the days of Paul, the Greeks themselves use this particular word that we get the word moderation from um, in context where people yielded their rights, where they patiently bore abuse, where they put up with other people's faults. An article, an article written by Stanley Carvel included a, a report of a New England pipe com cleaning company in Watertown, Connecticut. The three-man crew was digging 25 feet below the historic streets of Revere, Massachusetts in order to clean a clogged 10-inch 
sewer line. Anybody want to take on that job? Nasty. I've been there, done that one. Don't like it. In addition to this unusual mess, they expected to find this three-man crew ended up uh, unearthing 61 rings, several old vintage coins, and even several pieces of valuable silverware, which, by the way, they were allowed to keep. Carvel draws the moral of the story by writing, whether it's pipes or people, if you put up with some messes, sometimes you find real treasures. So I want to tell you what I think that the Apostle Paul is saying here. And I think that's a great analogy. That's why I read it. If I could translate the analogy back to what I believe Paul is saying to the believers here in verse 5, he's basically saying when you're in the middle of a mess, when you're in the midst of, uh, of an argumentative society, when you're in the midst of a, a messy situation, you have the opportunity to become the treasure. You have the opportunity to become the treasure that they didn't expect to find. Instead of arguing back, instead of slamming them, instead of ridiculing them, instead of doing all the things that our nature wants us to do, we live by the supernatural, by the Spirit of God. Be that real treasure. Be that sterling silver in that pile of you-know-what. One recent author complained about the current spirit of our time, which is anything but gentle, he writes. At the beginning of the 21st century, reasoned discourse is increasingly given away to in-your-face soundbites. Playing hardball is the dominant metaphor for American public life. Our interchanges are contra, uh, con, conf, confrontational, divisive, and dismissive. Balance and fairness are uh, casualties on the evening news, which shows two or three and sometimes four people contending simultaneously for dominance. Volume and disagreement are the new civil virtues. This command has never been more difficult than it is today. Paul uses the same word in Titus chapter 3 where he contrasts the gentle person with a brawler, a fighter, an argumentative person. James uses the same word in the le his letter in chapter 3 to describe someone willing to yield to someone else. So he says what we need to be is willing to yield. We need to be gentle instead of argumentative. Paul is effectively commanding us all Pursue a reputation of yielding. Pursue a reputation of being gracious when you might even be able to, you might even be the one who's actually right and the other person wrong. Peter Marshall, who was one of the chaplains for the Senate of the United States many years ago, prayed this wonderful prayer. It's so important. He said, Lord, when we're wrong, make us willing to, be, to change. And when we're right, make us easy to live with. There's a sense of decency and civility bound up in this command that Paul gives to us here in verse 5. 
And do we ever need a fresh demonstration in a world today where disagreement is and, and hostility is the, the theme of the day? I mean, we've all seen it. I pulled into Walmart here a couple of weeks ago and came around a corner and I didn't see the guy trying to back out until I was already behind him. Well, he saw me and when he drove by me, I got, you know, that's all I'll say. <laughs> um, we've all seen the road rage. We might even be guilty of it a time or two. When people are in our way and we want to get somewhere, we need to realize that we have a perfect opportunity in a time when hostility is the theme of the day to be gentle, to yield the right away to let others go in front. Jesus said it like this, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. What was he saying? Have a spirit of yieldness. Let others go before you, and I will honor you in due season. A poll that underscores the real issue with the lack of civility in our culture today, said this, according to this poll, the percentage of Americans who, and I'm going to give you several, just listen to them, it's important, think that the lack of civility is a serious problem. 89% of Americans surveyed said it's a problem. 73% said they think the, the spirited political campaigns are the blame. All the ridicule that we get in, in political world. 67% of those surveyed said they think graphic, violent rock music is the blame. 52% said they think that brash talk radio is the blame for all of the harshness. However, only 1% think their own behavior is uncivil. Think about it just for a minute. All those people believe it's everybody else's fault, but when it comes down to where are you? Not my fault. Really? We need to think about how we respond when things don't go our way. Are we like the world or like the word? Listen, we happen to live at a perfect time and in the perfect generation to resurrect a pursuit for a reputation of being civil, gracious, and gentle. The second thing that I want you to see is the reason for gentleness. In verse 5, Paul goes on to say, not only is there a need for this, not only to say, let your moderation, your gentleness, but look at the last part of that, and we'll close very quickly. The Lord is at hand. The reason for our gentleness is that Paul says the Lord is at hand. Now, our resolution is to be joyful. Our reputation should be to be gentle. And the reason why is because the Lord is near. 
And we all believe the Lord is coming soon. We believe that we have seen prophetic things proclaimed and, and, and fulfilled, and we believe that God is standing on the threshold, and He could come any moment. So in light of that, be joyful. Be gentle. Don't keep your eyes focused on your circumstances. Keep your eyes on the coming of the Lord, for your Redeemer draweth nigh. The Lord is near. Now, listen, it certainly can refer to uh, the, the fact that uh, a matter of time. In other words, the time is short. The Lord is near. And he could be speaking prophetically. Paul could be saying that the Lord is coming soon, so get it together, church, so that you're the example that you need to be. But I'm wondering if maybe he doesn't have another point in mind when he says the Lord is near. Not just prophetically. But let me ask you a question. Is there any place that you can go that the Lord is not there? Not as a believer. Why? Because the Lord is in here. You see, Paul may have been referring to the fact the Lord is near. We need to act like this. We need to behave like this because the Spirit of God lives in us. He is near to us. He is there for us. He is always with us. It might be that he is referring more to that personal presence than that prophetic promise. In other words, this isn't just a phrase of prophecy, but proximity. The Lord is near to you when? Now. Everywhere you go, the Lord goes with you. So be careful, little feet, where you go. In the best of times, one author writes, the Lord is near. In the worst of times, the Lord is still with us. In every changing circumstance of life. In all the seasons of life, He is a friend for life. He is not only near when the sun shines, He is near when the storms rage and the hurricanes blow. The weather makes no difference to Him. He is always near. Paul reminds us that we're going to have a resolution of joy, to be joyful in a world that... that sometimes doesn't offer much to be joyful about. But we're also to have a reputation of gentleness in an argumentative world. May the church, and when I speak the church, I'm speaking may every Christian believer allow the Spirit of God to lead God and live through them. Paul is saying to us, to be joyful spills out. To be gentle spills over. Imagine if you would, if the church got a hold of this today, in the days in which we're living, what could we do in a disagreeable world? Imagine the church could be known as the assembly resolved to follow joyfully their Lord no matter what. Because he is near and he is coming 
ever quickly. Make this your resolution to be joyful in all circumstances. Make this your reputation to be gentle in even a disagreeable world. And do it all for the glory of the Lord. Andrew, Tammy, somebody, piano, somebody, anybody? No, not anybody. I don't want to. I don't want Keg playing the piano. Somebody that knows how to do it, please. I say that with gentle love. Church, we've laughed about some things today in our sermon, and I hope that you have been spoken to about some things in the sermon. We're living in a time when the church needs to be the church like it was of the first century. We need to get back to the basics. We need to be spirit-led, spirit-filled people. And we need to show the world that the God who indwells us helps us to live in this world different than those who are absent from him. Hard to offer them something that we're not showing that it makes a difference in our life. We need to live and love others the way that Christ lives in us and loves us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to just look at these two verses and to challenge every believer to show grace in a disagreeable world. Have a, a resolve that we're going to be joyful in all of our circumstances so the world around us that is faced with all of the dilemmas and all the problems that we're faced with, but yet, Lord, with hopelessness and helplessness, may they see Christ in us. May we offer Him to them. Lord, then I pray that we would also, Lord, in all the harshness that the world is throwing back at one another, the name calling and the belittling and the, and the viciousness of my way, my way, Lord, may we yield our way to them. May we step back and let them go first in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray that, Father, that we would put feet to our prayer today. I pray that we would go forth and we would live out the life that you've called us to live and that the world would see Jesus in us. For those of us that are here today that need to come to the altar, Lord, I pray that we might come and we might pray together. We might encourage one another. We might say, Lord, I need that help to be that. Lord, you will be there for us.